Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a daiquiri. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a cranberry vodka. On this episode, we're exploring the unsolved Burger Chef murders. On the evening of Friday, November 17, 1978, workers at the Speedway Indiana Burger Chef fast food restaurant were going about their closing routine. On shift were 20-year-old assistant manager Jane Freet, 17-year-old Ruth Ellen Shelton, 16-year-old Daniel Davis, and 16-year-old Mark Flemons. They were all supposed to stay a few hours past closing to clean up the restaurant and get things ready for the next morning shift. Not long after midnight, 17-year-old colleague Brian Crane got to the restaurant to help the four night shift workers close after another employee had called out due to car troubles. When Brian arrived, no one was at the restaurant. He noticed Jane's car was not in the parking lot either. Brian went behind the restaurant and saw that the back door was cracked open. He looked throughout the restaurant and his co-workers were nowhere to be found, despite their jackets and purses still being there. As he walked into the manager's office, he saw the safe wide open and the register's cash drawers laid out. The sales receipts from November 17th totaled around $581. No bills were in the drawers, but $100 in coins were left. Worried, Brian called someone who then told him to contact the police. After he called the police, Brian said the employee who called out that night showed up at the restaurant. When the other employee heard police were on their way, they immediately left. We wanted to point out that there are varying stories on how and when the police were called. After investigating the restaurant, the police theorized that Jane, Ruth Allen, Daniel, and Mark had stolen the money themselves and went to party and have a good time. The Burger Chef manager had a hard time believing that since all four employees were fairly responsible and would not have left the restaurant unlocked or with the lights on. Police put out an all-points bulletin, or APB, for Jane, Daniel, Mark, and Ruth, and took their belongings as evidence. The restaurant was not blocked off as a crime scene, and because of that, the manager had the next morning shifts clean up the restaurant, take out any remaining trash, and open it up to the public as usual. No one ever dusted for fingerprints, and there were no photos taken of the restaurant until hours later when police attempted to recreate the scene and place evidence back where it was initially found. Ruth, Mark, Jane, and Daniel's families were notified and they were left to wait anxiously for their return. Ruth Ellen's parents prayed and her mother wrote about her fears in her diary. By the afternoon of November 18th, no one had seen or heard from any of the staff and concerns grew and police took the case a bit more seriously. Ruth's parents decided to notify their family and friends before the media broke the story. As Mark Fleming's father, Robert, waited for more information from the police, he remembered a conversation between him and his son. They were watching a TV show that included a kidnapping scene, and Mark turned to his father and said, quote, I wouldn't lay down and die. End quote. He told his father that he would break away and try to quote unquote bob and weave as he ran to make it harder to get caught. This sign of their son's tenacity gave the Flemings family hope as the hours went by. That same day, Jane's car was found unlocked in town, not far from the Speedway Burger Chef location. Then on November 19th, the body of all four workers were found by hikers in a wooded area of Johnson County, Indiana, about 40 minutes away from the restaurant. Ruth and Daniel were found lying next to each other. They had both been shot execution style multiple times by a 38 caliber gun. 
Jane was found a few yards away as if she had been trying to flee before being stabbed in the chest twice with a hunting knife. During her autopsy, the blade of the knife was found in Jane's chest, but the handle was missing and is still missing to this day. Mark was found around 70 yards away from the others, making it look like he had attempted to run away. He was beaten with some type of chain before falling downhill, either by accidentally running into a tree or from his injuries caused by the perpetrators and choking to death on his blood. Detective Ken York told WTHR News that if Mark had fallen uphill, he likely would have survived. Each victim was still in their Burger Chef uniform, and watches and jewelry were found on several victims as well. According to the Indianapolis Monthly, the FBI, the Indiana State Police, the Indianapolis Police Department, and the Marion County Sheriff's Department were called in to assist. Again, the crime scene was compromised due to the amount of people converging on the site. Author of the book, The Burger Chef Murders in Indiana, Julie Young, told A&E, quote, there were rumors that one of the bodies was moved before the coroner or evidence technician arrived at the scene, end quote. In addition, an officer accidentally took two pieces of identification found on a body home with him in his coat pocket and didn't realize it until a few weeks after the murder. Police quickly shifted their theory from reckless partying teens to a robbery gone wrong. They speculated that two to four people were involved in the robbery and things escalated when one of the staff recognized one of the perpetrators. Once the robbers panicked, they decided to abduct the four employees using Jane's car and a nearby getaway car before murdering them in an area that at least one of the perpetrators was likely familiar with. This is also the most popular theory with the public and many believe that the robbers either recognized Jane since she had previously worked at another Burger Chef location in Indiana. Other theories include the robbery being drug-related or one of the victims fighting off their attackers before the entire group was taken away and murdered. This later theory came to light during Mark's autopsy when bruises were found on his head and shoulders and were estimated to be an hour or two older than the time of his death. At first, it was speculated that the murders were related to the recent Speedway bombings that injured two people, but no evidence ever connected the two cases. The investigation was transferred over to the Indiana State Police, who immediately realized the original responding police had made critical errors that put them at a disadvantage. Since the restaurant had been cleaned the morning after the kidnapping, the state police were not able to collect any vital crime scene evidence. Witnesses who had been at the Burger Chef restaurant earlier on the night of November 17th told police they remembered seeing two suspicious-looking white men in their 30s near the restaurant around closing time. We wanted to share that there is some discrepancy with where exactly the two men were seen. Some sources say the men were in a car outside the restaurant. Some say they were hanging out behind the restaurant. Some say that they were inside the restaurant, and others say that they were along the train tracks near the restaurant. One man had a beard and the other was clean shaving with fair hair. They became known as the bearded man and the fair hair man. A composite sketch was created based on the witness's memory and was circulated to the public. 3D busts of the men were even made and shared with the public, which was unique for the 1970s. Burger Chef offered a $25,000 reward. An anonymous donor offered $10,000 and the Indianapolis Star newspaper set up a way for potential informants 
to keep their identity secret while still being eligible for the reward, but no one came forward. A strong lead came several weeks later when a man in a bar in Greenwood, Indiana was heard bragging about committing the Burger Chef murders. He was given a polygraph test, which he passed, and eventually told the police he was lying, but that he did know who actually committed the murders. He gave them the names of several men who had been involved in a larger fast food robbery ring. Police then went to Franklin, Indiana to investigate. As they were driving through the town, they spotted a man that looked identical to the sketch of the bearded man. They spoke with this man who did not have an alibi for the night of November 17th. The bearded man would later be asked to come in for a police lineup, and he showed up clean-shaven with no beard after reportedly having had his beard for five years. Likely because of that, the witness could not identify him. Living near the bearded man was a man the police called the quote-unquote shotgun man because he'd later go to prison for shotgun crimes. They were also able to identify the fair-haired man who also, quote, was sent to prison for unrelated fast food robbery crimes, end quote. Both the shotgun man and the fair hair man were offered plea deals in exchange for information about the Burger Chef murders, but both refused to speak to law enforcement and denied any involvement. In the years after the murders, the man at the Greenwood Bar died by suicide and the bearded man died of a heart attack. Detective York calls both of their deaths quote-unquote suspicious and believes the shotgun man may have been involved since they occurred not long after the man was released from prison. At some point, the bearded man's son called police and told them, that before his death, his father, quote, confided to him that he had been involved in the Burger Chef case, end quote. As of 2018, the shotgun man and the fair-haired man are believed to be alive and living in Johnson County, Indiana. Law enforcement had witnesses hypnotized and sought help from psychics, but nothing helped them crack the case. In 1984, four years after the murders, Mel Wilsey, a detective with the Marion County, Indiana Sheriff's Department, got a call from Donald Forrester, an inmate at an Indiana state prison serving a 95-year sentence for rape, who wanted to confess to the Burger Chef murders in exchange for not being transferred to a notoriously violent Indiana state prison. Forrester spoke with Wilsey and his partner Gary Maxey over the next two years. According to Forrester and Indianapolis Monthly, Jane Freed's brother James owed money from a drug deal, a fact that went along with James Freed's criminal record. So James and some associates, the dealers, came simply to threaten Jane. Mark stepped in to protect her. A scuffle ensued outside of the restaurant and Mark fell and hit his head on the bumper of the assailant's van, thus accounting for the head trauma. Believing they had killed Mark, the gang decided to take all of the employees to Johnson County and eliminate any potential witnesses. Forrester admitted to shooting Daniel and Ruth Ellen and shared the names of three other people involved. He was even able to show the exact location where the victims were each found and told police about the knife in Jane's chest, a detail that had not been widely publicized. Detective Wilsey spoke with Forrester's ex-wife, who told them that they went to the same secluded location, which was known to be a lover's lane, days after the murders, and that Forrester went into a creek and took three shell casings out of the water and later flushed them down the toilet at their home. Wilsey and Maxie got a search warrant for the home, which was no longer occupied by his ex-wife, and opened the septic tank where they found three shell casings that they said matched bullets used to kill Ruth and Daniel. They were slowly building a case against Forrester when everything fell apart. In November 1986, someone inside the department with knowledge of the investigation leaked the details of Forrester's confession and cooperation to the press. Days later, Forrester recanted his confession. Though they still have Forrester 
they're on tape admitting to his role in the murders. They could not move the case along without his continued cooperation. The following months, it was announced that Forrester would not be charged for the Burger Chef murders. Despite this, Wilsey still believes Forrester was involved in the murders. In 2006, Forrester died of cancer while in prison. Authorities searched as far as Ohio, Wisconsin, Chicago, and Texas for answers in the case. Though more suspects have popped up on the police's radar, there has never been enough evidence to arrest anyone for the Burger Chef murders. Detective York said, quote, there was just no physical evidence. It would have been purely circumstantial, end quote. Many of the original police that worked this case have either retired or passed away. The current officer assigned to this case, Sergeant Bill Dalton, hopes to gather all the living detectives and investigators who worked the case in one room to have a discussion about the murders and hear their perspectives. In November 2018, on the 40th anniversary of the murders, police shared a photo of the knife blade used to murder Jane in an attempt to bring more attention to the case and to locate the broken handle and jog someone's memory all these years later. The Burger Chef chain was eventually sold to the fast food chain parties and the Speedway Burger Chef location is now just an abandoned building. The Burger Chef murders remained unsolved after 40 years and are known as Indiana's most notorious unsolved crime. In 2018, Red Oak Trees memorial plaques and a marble bench placed in Leonard Park and Speedway were dedicated to the victims. Each memorial gives a brief glimpse into the personalities of the four victims. Mark was friendly and selfless with a sense of style. Daniel was a talented photographer who made loved ones smile. Jane was a leader with a sense of humor and a heart of gold. Ruth was creative, honest, and kind with a love for music. If you have any information on the Burger Chef murders, please contact Crime Stoppers of Central Indiana at 317-232-8477. Tell what are your thoughts on the Burger Chef murders and who do you think did it and what do you think was the reasoning? So I do believe that Forrester was involved in this. And I think that the only reason why this case has not been solved is because he stopped cooperating. I think that this case is a prime example of what not to do when investigating. You also have the fact that the police was very quick to set up a theory that listed this as not a serious crime their investigative process. And I feel like that also created a big delay in this case. I wonder if this was drug related. There's a lot of evidence connected to that. I don't know if I fully believe that just because why wouldn't her brother provide more information if that was the case? I feel like he would have come forward to make sure that the person that murdered his sister was prosecuted. One question that I do have is why did someone inside the department leak that Forrester was working with them? Like, what was the purpose of that? It just doesn't make any sense to me. At this point, honestly, I don't know if this case will ever be solved. I think that the people that are responsible for it are probably deceased at this 
this point. And like Detective York has said, like there's no physical evidence. All of it is going to be circumstantial. And then you have the effects that time has on witnesses and evidence. So this case seems like it's going to remain unsolved. What are your thoughts? I agree. I think unless there's some kind of like miraculous DNA evidence or something that comes forward, this is not going to be solved. And it really, really sucks that the police pretty much know who did it and they just can't prove it. It would have been solved for sure if the police had properly surveyed the restaurant the night of the 17th. I don't understand why they thought that all these kids would have just stolen the money and then like went out to party. I don't know if any of them were that close. That's not something I found in my research. And also, wouldn't they have known they were going to get caught like the next day? It doesn't make any sense to me. And it really is a case of like, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. The police seem very split between two groups of different people. I'm also leaning more towards Forrester, but I wonder if Jane's brother like knew she was working, why would he go there? Like, Did he really think she wouldn't recognize him? That seems strange to me. But then also with the bearded man and the fair-haired man, they found the bearded man and why else would he have shaved his beard? I I don't know if there's any evidence that the bearded man and Forrester knew each other. They were running in the same circles that the fair hair man knew each other. I'm not sure. And we said this a few times that there's discrepancies on different things. And it was a little difficult to research this case because so much information was not shared with the public. I mean, we don't even know the fair haired man and the bearded man's real names. I mean, there's three people in this potential suspects that all have nicknames. The picture of the knife was not shared with the public until 2018. The police knew that a lot of people involved in this likely died. It's not impossible, but how many people would really remember the hilt of the knife? It's a long shot. There were also some discrepancies with who was supposed to be working that night because one thing that I had read was that people also thought Mark Flemons might have recognized the people that came in because he wasn't supposed to be working that night. So the people that he knew, they thought, okay, well, Mark's not working. We can go in and like rob the store. But then I had also read that Daniel was the one that wasn't supposed to be working that night. I don't think that the police need to share every little bit of information with the public, but I think some of this stuff probably would have helped the public have a better understanding of who or what to be looking out for. And that also maybe could have helped the case be solved by now. I don't think it's ever going to be solved. And that's really, really frustrating because like I said, it's like the stars aligned for this to perfectly not work out. Part of why I think I am more inclined to believe Forrester was because he knew so much information that wasn't shared. Unless maybe while he was in jail, he talked to someone that was involved. I don't know. But one theory as to why he also stopped working with the police was because he was afraid of his associates knowing that he was working with them, which to me seems very believable. These all sound like, frankly, scummy people who really got lucky, and that's incredibly frustrating. I will say, even though the police that were initially called to the scene didn't handle things well, police admit that they didn't handle things well, and I can appreciate that because that's something we've said multiple times. Like, Why can't the police just own up to mistakes that they've made? And in this, they did and I think they really have done all that they could to try and solve this case. I mean, calling in psychics, traveling across the country, you know, they did a lot and I do respect that. Like we said, the Burger Chef murders are one of the most notorious unsolved crimes in Indiana. There are 
quite a few unsolved workplace murders. So we wanted to just shed light on two pretty notorious ones. So one of the most notorious unsolved murders in the state of Texas is the yogurt shop murders. On the evening of December 6, 1991, a police officer noticed a fire at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop in Austin, Texas. Firefighters put out the fire. Inside of the shop were the bodies of four new girls, 13-year-old Amy Ayers, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, and sisters Sarah Harbison, 15, and Jennifer Harbison, 17. All four had been shot execution style in the back of the head with a 22 caliber pistol and were either bound or gagged. Sarah had also been raped. Amy Ayers had been shot twice and sexually assaulted. Her body was the only one not burned beyond recognition. Sarah and Eliza's body were stacked on top of each other and investigators believe that the killers had stacked all four bodies on top of each other, but Amy managed to crawl out and in doing so moved Jennifer's body. Jennifer and Eliza were employees of the yogurt shop and Sarah and her friend Amy stopped by to see Jennifer after hanging out at the mall. Since the building's sprinkler system was set off during the fire, evidence was washed away. Customers described two suspicious looking men who were at the yogurt shop not long before closing. These men were never identified. Just over a week after the murder, 16-year-old Maurice Pierce was picked up by police for having one of the same guns used to murder the girls. On the night of December 6th, he had been seen at the same mall Amy and Sarah were at. He told police 15-year-old Forrest Wellborn had borrowed his gun that night and killed the girls. Wellborn denied involvement and said he, Pierce, and friends Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen, both 17, had taken a stolen car to San Antonio that night. Years later, all four boys, now adults, were arrested and charged with a quadruple murder. Scott and Springsteen had confessed to the murders under rugged interrogation by Detective Hector Polanco, an officer who was later removed from the case after allegations he coerced a confession in a different case. They implicated Pierce and Wellborn in their confessions. Scott and Springsteen would later recant their confessions, saying they were coerced by police. The charges would eventually be dropped against Pierce and Wellborn, but Scott and Springsteen were convicted. However, both their convictions were later overturned. A small DNA sample that was tested did not match any of the four men. Investigators are hoping advancement in DNA technology will help solve this crime. And just because the DNA sample was tested and didn't match them, there are still quite a few people that do think Scott, Springsteen, Wellborn, and Pierce did in fact commit these murders and they got away with it. The next one we wanted to talk about is the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. On the morning of February 10th, 1990, 34-year-old Stephanie Senek arrived at the Las Cruces Bowl in Las Cruces, New Mexico to begin her shift as manager. With her were her 12-year-old daughter, Melissa Rapace, and her 13-year-old friend, Amy Hauser. The girls were going to help out at the bowling alley's daycare that day. Cook Ida Holguin was also on site to prep for the day. Two armed men then came into the building through an unlocked door and held everyone in Senek's office, ordering them to get on the ground. During the robbery, 26-year-old employee Steve Terran came into the building with his two-year-old and six-year-old daughters Valerie and Paula since he was not able to find a babysitter that morning. They were ordered into the office. The men took around $5,000 from the safe and according to CNN, the two men then shot all seven people at point-blank range and set the office on fire. Steve Terran, Valerie, Paula, and Amy all died at the scene. 
Melissa was able to call 911 and rescue herself, her mother Stephanie, and Ida. Stephanie would unfortunately pass in 1999 due to complications from her injuries. Within an hour of the shooting, police set up roadblocks around Las Cruces and screened everyone exiting the town, which was very close to the U.S.-Mexican border. The area was searched by planes and helicopters, but no suspects were ever found. The suspects are described as two dark-skinned Hispanic men, one man younger with a must mustache and dark hair, the other older with longer gray hair, who both spoke fluent English. If they were alive today, they would be in their late 50s to early 70s. Police are still getting tips and actively investigating this case. Though they do not have DNA evidence, they do have the fingerprints from the killers. Steve Taran's brother strongly believes someone knows something but has yet to come forward. And these two cases in particular, some people have questioned whether or not they are somehow related. As far as I know, no evidence has been found to link them. And I also know that some people have thought whether or not these were somehow related to the Burger Chef murders too. But again, I don't think that they are. Del, any thoughts on either the yogurt shop murders or the Las Cruces Bowl massacre? So when it comes to the yogurt shop murder of course it's a tragedy and it's one of those things where I don't know if I fully believe that the people that have been implicated actually did it I think that it's always a problem when you have a confession that has been gained through poor interrogation techniques because it always creates doubt and whether the people were saying that so that the interrogation can end or if they were actually telling the truth I am happy that there is some DNA evidence that they could use. When it comes to the Bowling Alley Massacre, yes, they took $5,000 from the safe, but then the question remains like, why did they shoot them? Why didn't they take the money and go? They didn't leave much evidence besides their fingerprints. Why hasn't it been solved? I wish there was more information on what tips they have received and why those haven't panned out. What do you think? I totally agree about the Las Cruces Bowl. There are rumors with within Las Cruces that these murders were drug related. That I believe someone working at the bowling alley had some type of drug debt. I don't know if it was any of the people that were actually shot that morning, but someone had some type of drug debt. That kind of sounds believable to me. Steve Terran's brother, I'm sorry that we don't have his name, but made kind of an interesting point that he thinks that these two killers are probably not alive anymore due to their lifestyle. He kind of said like, if you're able to shoot a two-year old and a six-year-old girl then you clearly like are an evil person and I think he was kind of alluding to like if you're okay doing that you are living a lifestyle that is like high risk to me that kind of alludes to maybe like gang behavior too so who knows maybe they aren't alive anymore it's really wild that we don't have any information I think both of these crimes there's a good chance if they happened now that they would be solved mainly because of cameras the yogurt shop that was in a strip mall I would assume every shop in that strip mall would have some type of camera there. The Burger Chef Murders, Yogurt Shop, and Las Cruces, they all have that same element of someone thought they were going to get away with this and they tried to cover it up and unfortunately they did get away with this. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Burger Chef Murders. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the Green River Killer. As always, stay safe.